Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Ilana Navarro's eye-opening new documentary film, Josephine Baker, The Story of an Awakening, illuminates the life of an iconic artist and human rights activist, Josephine Baker. She was the first global black superstar, world-renowned performer, World War II spy and activist are just a few of the titles that could be used to describe her. Josephine Baker grew up as a poor black girl in Missouri, only to later become the queen of Paris. It's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable trajectory for anyone's life. She had a full life some amazing things that happened to her, amazing things that she did over the course of her life. And we're here to talk about Josephine Baker with the director of this wonderful film, Josephine Baker, The the Story of an Awakening, and that would be Ilana Navarro. Ilana, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Well, Well, thank you for having me. As I said before we started our conversation, that I knew of her, but I didn't know much about her. Tell me where your interest in Josephine Baker started and what prompted the uh, the idea and, and you moving forward with a documentary film about her. It was um, it was offered to me by the by the, the, by the producer, I had to say. The producer had the idea of making a documentary about Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker has an image that's very ambivalent in France. Um, most of the time, it's she has a very oversimplified uh, image of someone of a, of a banana dancer who basically played with uh, racist imagery of the time to make herself, um, um, you know, heard of and um, not necessarily in the most glorious way. And she's sort of seen as a very shallow artist, uh, very fun but very shallow, and not necessarily not particularly respected. So how to say, uh, in the beginning, it, I knew it was going to be so edgy. It was going to be hard to tell her story, to, to find a, a way to tell her story in a country where her image was, was full of dust. In fact, when I, when I started reading her first memoirs, it was an eye-opener to me. Like the first memoirs that she had started writing um, more or less a couple years after she moved to France. She was, uh, of course, she always had co-authors and the co-author uh, wrote the interviews he had of her. She probably didn't speak very well English, at the, uh, French at the time, so it was rearranged by the author. Still, that being said, those interviews are so fresh, so fresh of someone who just arrives to, arrived to France and that see France as um, foreigners are, I, and from the perspective of a black woman on a white society in the middle of the roaring 20s. Everything that was happening in France, she was at the heart of it. Only she was not like them and she could see them from a complete different perspective. And I decided that it was, a, it was really important to really tell the story from that perspective, to show her in a completely different light, to see how she dealt with white gaze, how she dealt with male gaze, how she dealt with being so much in the middle of all the gazes because everyone was talking about her. Actually, she was the most photographed woman of her time. 
and how to carry that in a manner so full of grace and so, so full of an invent, in, invention was a fascinating to story to tell yeah. in our in today's world and when you when you tell it then you actually have a whole um how do you say it? you take away slowly all the dust on her story starts to go away and that's what i liked about this documentary to make about making this documentary i had a feeling that i could play all the time on the one hand about how how society looks at her and reduced her into this image of the savage and how she played with that image to actually say completely something else and slowly how to she take took that image to do something else with it I mean, I'm not saying Josephine was, how to say it, um, completely aware of what she was doing when she started, you know, dancing with the banana skirt and all of that. But uh, that being said, uh, she knew how to take that place to transform it slowly to something else. And that's exactly what I wanted to, to show. Well, one of the things that's in the film, Josephine Baker, the story of an awakening, in the film, she says when, that when she arrived in France, it was the first time that she had been in a predominantly white culture that accepted her, that allowed her to be more of herself and not like America, which was very segregated at the time that she left. Jim Crow laws were in place. There were so many restrictions on, on African-Americans at that time. So for her to go to France, while you're saying that she was regarded with as something of a, a novelty act in a way, here in the United States, she, at least from her perspective, being in France, uh, she felt uh, more respected. Is is that, am I saying that, that correctly? That's for sure. I mean, when you see her, her uh, telling her own story, then you realize that really uh, just the fact of being greeted with a smile by anyone, uh, being able to sit in a cafe with everyone, all of these things were amazing to her, were just, uh, that was the basic way she fell in love with Paris really in the beginning because she had never had that before. Mm -hmm. Then there is also the image of why the French people looked at her that way. Well, it wasn't that simple either. You know, it wasn't that um, French people were completely, you know, anti-racist and uh, they treated everyone like that. No, um, she actually um, benefited in a way. She, she took advantage in a way of, uh, of a situation that was beyond her, which is that uh, French people saw African-Americans as a sort of novelty uh, mm -hmm. as compared to Africans, for example, or Caribbeans uh, who were colonized by them at the time. Uh, they certainly wouldn't have not looked at her in the same way had she been uh, African, for example. And so there is a sort of ex exception that French historically made for African-Americans because uh, of a variety of reasons, but especially because they were seen as a sort of uh, uh, actors of, mod of modernity, as some sort of uh, modern savage in a way, like mm, see, mm -hmm, because they mm -hmm. had a, a, an idea of uh, black people being savage and that was very racist like everywhere else. Yeah. But African-Americans being westernized was a, a, an object of fascination for them. Jazz clubs were everywhere and, and people really loved that culture. It's the, the moment when actually there was a whole um, 
section of I'm not a, a, I'm not a historian, so I won't say it with exactly the same words as other people would say. And it was it's shown in my film, but I know that African American soldiers were a great help to to make it that France France became a winner of the First World War. Uh, they're very very admiring of African American troops that helped France in that right. way. And most of those uh, African-American soldiers that had been in France during the First World War stayed in France because they had never been so well treated in uh, their own country. And they started uh, playing uh, in, in mainly playing uh, jazz music in many Parisian bars and nightclubs. And Josephine is completely uh, a product of that. I mean, Josephine knew before she went to France that France would have been a welcoming place for her because right. of her, again, would, wouldn't mind her skin color. She already knew that everything was already there when she came. Uh, only she took the space of being the one that made, uh, that, that, that became so famous in that environment. Well, let's talk about her skills as a performer. She sort of created a career for herself in the realm of dance and but also over time became a singer uh she was considered a kind of a comedian she had a the gift for comedy she had a gift for song and dance and all of those things became as you described it earlier she the dancing part is where we got to know her uh and she was it kind of a burlesque sort of uh, show that she was performing in? What was it, a cabaret? What What was the sort of venue? Because uh, she is in the, in the pictures that I remember, well, I see in the film, but also remember the early pictures of her. She's essentially topless dancing. Uh, and so I don't know what if it was cabaret or if it was burlesque. <laughs> right. I don't know what the context was, so. That's when it gets intriguing for, uh, you know, for, for people who don't know about history is that, yes, um, in fact, the show was put on by an American producer who uh, promised to bring African-American show to France. But the producer, the other producer of the show, uh, the French producers, were not expecting what they, they got when the troupe arrived to France. They were expecting some sort of uh, African savagery. To begin with, the show was called La Revue Negre, which is something you do not pronounce of today. At the time, you know, that was, that, that was the name of the show. And she, it was, she, she was expected, I mean, the, the people who came in were expected to dance, to imitate some sort of uh, African savage dance, tribal dance, is that what I that would say. And, um, and they, when they didn't do that, they, uh, they were pretty deceived and they thought the show was going to be, um, was not going to be a hit. And they, they changed everything at the last minute to make it more like that. And Josephine played the game, basically. Um, they put Josephine in, in, in the front. They gave her in, under the, the light much more than, than the role she had had in originally. Because she um, was, you know, playful. She was sexy and she didn't mind uh, being topless, for example. And she just enjoyed that people were... Uh, watching her and were having fun and without necessarily degrading her. It could have been, you know, if you really think about it, it could have been degrading and probably people who were there in the troupe would have thought that she was uh, degrading um, her image and everyone else on the, on the way. Well, she actually played with that in a, in a strange way 
and she didn't mind how to say it. She she was fearless and she played and she used she, she took what she had to to change it later on to something else. And at that moment, yes, probably she we can say that she could she could be an opportunist. I mean, everything about Josephine. The question about Josephine is that uh, how much of, of opportunist was she and how much of, of, of someone who was just a pragmatic was she? Um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very subversive question. <laughs> Maybe she didn't know herself at the time, right? Well, I mean, we don't know. Well, Ilana, it seems to me that she was very adaptable. She was flexible. She understood what the options were in front of her. And she seemed to be smart enough to be able to t use them to her advantage. So uh, is that fair to say it that way? That's I, I, exactly. That's what I would say. And with a lot of grace also. And just as you said, she was uh, a very good performer. She was, seemed like the kind of performer that would be able to kind of feed off of the reaction of an audience. She seemed, she, again, I think coming from her background, she gr grew up as a very poor Black girl in Missouri, very uh, trying and, and challenging um, conditions, and managed to just reinvent herself, find her way. Uh, she seemed, I'm, and I'm gleaning from all of this, that she was a very bright person. She had a high IQ or a high emotional IQ. Or, she just seemed like someone who could make it work, no matter what, no matter Completely. what. Is it? And, uh, and that's for sure. And um, as one of... Um, the interviewees in our film who was a theater critic, Margot Jeffersons, really yeah. eloquently says she actually didn't just enjoy being naked. She also enjoyed wearing the most expensive clothes of the most famous clothes designers of her time. She uh, was the, the muse of, uh, of the most famous artists at, of her time. She made a point of being the most elegant woman of her time also. Um, you know, changing her hairdos, as Margaret Jefferson says, and wearing and even even going around with a leopard uh, on the streets of Paris. Uh, she was uh, at at one point she was uh, the most modern icon that you could imagine, and at some point and another point she was uh, the most uh, uh, domesticated savage uh, woman that you could find. I mean, she played with these roles, and right. that was, that's where her uh, smartness is. Yeah, uh, that's where she's so smart. Yeah. Well, she she learned to speak French. Uh, she she adapted again. I, that's the word I keep coming back to. She adapted to her circumstances, and she was good at what she did. But she's quite a good singer, quite and and maybe not technically, but she seemed to be able to inhabit a song in, in a way that sort of oftentimes people with maybe less technical abilities in terms of singing are able to do. They're able to take a song and make it their own. And and those are the things that made her so popular. I, I don't think we can understate just how popular she was, not just in France, but she became a worldwide star. Is that, am I being accurate Completely, about that? Exactly. And that's what we saw, actually. When, when I actually followed her memoirs, and actually, she actually wrote, she went to a world tour between 1920. Uh, around 1927 and 28, she was on a world tour and everywhere she went, she created scandals in a way because people um, in those countries were, did, not, did not like the way she was naked, uh, the fact that a black woman was such an icon. 
And so she was an object of curiosity everywhere she went. And when you, we followed her memoirs to look at those countries where she traveled, we found a lot of footage. And we oh. actually found footage in, in Prague, for example, or in Holland. And everywhere she went, she was a hit. Everywhere every, people were, were following her. People there, there's, a, there's a, this amazing image in, in Prague where you see like a crowd of people who are trying to, to get close to her on the street. And then you realize that it's not just a phenomenon between France and the United States. It's the whole of old Europe who was sort of waking up to welcoming. It's not a welcoming. It's to, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, it was an eye opener to see um, a black woman being such a star, an icon. Yeah. And elegant uh, as well. And elegant, exactly. Yeah. And so elegant as well. And so um, that's what we discovered everywhere she went. We tried to, to trace that. And, uh, and we found really amazing, not seen images. I want to remind our listeners that we're talking with the director of this wonderful documentary film called Josephine Baker, The Story of an Awakening. And the director and we're speaking with is Ilana Navarro, who is, as you just described, found this wonderful footage. One of my favorite things in the film is it must be near the end of her career or at least her performing career when she's on stage and she's got this huge dress on yeah. and she goes and she goes to sit down. This is someone who really knew how to command the stage and really was so, uh, had so much self-confidence at this point, so much she was so sure of herself and her abilities to command the attention of an audience. She, she walks up to the edge of the stage and sits down on the edge of the stage and just basically like a conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with several hundred people. And I just, I just love that. I, I loved her presence. I loved how she handled herself. It, it gives you an insight into why she was so popular, why she was so highly regarded and why people were so drawn to her. Is, is do you you know what I'm talking about? I'm sure, but yeah, what, what was that? She had a she sort of mesmerized everyone who was watching her. She had a real talent to, yeah, it's true. It's that's her charm, and she had her audience. I mean, the French people really loved her by the end of her and until the end of her, her life, and that's why she chose to to stay in France until the end of her life and to create this rainbow tribe. I mean, uh, uh, maybe we'll talk about that later, but. She, I mean, her, her darling public was the French people who saw her uh, since the 1920s until the 1970s um, and changed through all that time. Well, there's an amazing backstory as well on her, which I had never heard before. And I assume that it's well known in France. I've got to believe it was well known in France is that she was also during World War II she was essentially a spy working for the yes. resistance, which I had never heard of before. And how brave it was of her to do what she did to sort of hide in plain sight who she, what she was doing, which is just amazing to me. We, Tell us a little bit is. about that. What, what did she do? She decided to join the resistance uh, against the Nazis. She was a, it was a very conscious decision that she made at some point that she wanted to help when she heard Charles de Gaulle speak on the radio from London, uh, calling the French people to, to unite to fight against the Nazis. What she did was that she um, became friendly with uh, number, the number two of uh, the Secret Service um, 
guys from Paris. I, I, I don't remember exactly the title, but in, in any case, the guy was a, was a spy. But he pretended he was her assistant and she would be traveling from country to country with him, going to venues to, from venues to venues in, in consulates, in embassies, pretending to give concerts, but really carrying that guy with him so that he would communicate to, uh, to the French free forces about, for example, German positions that he would know, etc. at that time. So she, was, she, she sort of, um, you know, Josephine was his alibi, but she was taking him everywhere. And, and she lived with that guy more or less for, through the war. And at some point when the guy couldn't travel, she actually carried messages by herself in her underwear, uh, in her bras. And she would, uh, she, she would just go through all of the borders because she was so famous and all of the customs guys would just ask her autograph. <laughs> um, and when she traveled and no one even, even thought of controlling her bags or seeing what was in there. So um, yes, it pretty heroic when you when you think about it and when you look at it from from far away and those years that she spent during the the second world war are probably the years where she was most um, uh, truthful to herself when she really took decided to take action differently than what she had before and then when she really decided to turn her her consciousness as a personal level to a sort of action in a more collective way yeah. Well, let's talk about that. You mentioned earlier her Rainbow Tribe, which is another remarkable part of her story. And then later on, when she came back to the United States as a part of uh, the civil rights movement, her participation in that, especially the very, very famous March on Washington led by Martin Luther King in 1963 and how that played out. But let's talk about the, the Rainbow Tribe, which sounds so familiar and so modern today when we talk about rainbow coalitions and rainbow this and rainbow that. But back in the, what, 40s or 50s, we have the Rainbow Tribe that she assembled. Talk to us a little bit about that. Right. Well, well, just before we get to the, to the Rainbow Tribe, actually, the reason why she decided to adopt, actually, she first tried to come back to the United States after right. the war. Right. Uh, first, she really tried to uh, change all the racist habits, laws in the United States. And she was so deceived after the Second World War that the United States had not changed in its racist ways. She had fought with them um, and with the French against the Nazis, and she had really great hopes. And she struggled so hard. And when she realized that she was hitting a wall um, with um, you know, the McCarthy laws and the FBI starting a file against her, she came back. She, all, she was expelled, really, in a way, from the United States. She won her passport. She, people, people wouldn't let her back, go back in the United States at the time. So she decided to take a different sort of action. And what, was, what that was was that she decided to create her own alternative universe. In, in her French chateau in the middle of France, she decided to adopt 12 different children from 12 different nationalities, colors and um, all. And she would bring them to um, her chateau and raise them as a family with her husband. And she called that the Rainbow Tribe. That became her project from that on. It was in the 1950s and she probably was the first star in, to, to do these things. So it became a, a sort of a common thing. Uh, but, but then at the time she was, she was really the first. And, um, you know, it's disputable the way she 
collected those children in every concert that she went through here and there. At the time, probably adoption laws were not necessarily so well thought of at the time. <laughs> but still, that being said, she created this family and her children are still very close to one another. I mean, they, they all came yeah. to, the, to the film. Oh, the good. Premiere, oh, yeah. I mean, all the, all the ones that live in France, they all did. And that was a really particularly moving moment. And then we understood they were really close to one another, even though Josephine died more or less when they were teenagers, in a way they didn't really see her that long. And they were already orphans to begin with. So they were doubly orphans when Josephine passed away. But her project stayed, on, stayed along with them. Uh, it was a success. You watch uh, Josephine Baker, The Story of an Awakening, you realize there are multiple chapters, multiple ups and downs, but mostly up because she seemed to be a very determined and on balance, a very positive person as well. I don't, I didn't get from the film that she was ever negative uh, about the things that were going on in her life. They, I'm sure she wasn't. No, she wasn't. She was a, she's a real fighter. She fighter. was a, she was a, a really, really a role model for that. She just, in, in all circumstances, she just went on and she, she believed in, you know, um, I don't know what she had in her, but she was a real, for me, it, it was even important to keep that in mind in every time I was making the film, you know. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> terrific. It's a terrific. And one last sort of historic footnote in terms of her involvement, as we were talking about, in human rights and civil rights, when she came back to the United States and was embraced by Martin Luther King uh, at the March on Washington and the only woman speaker that historic day in Washington, D.C. And she came dressed essentially as the French resistance warrior that she was uh, in another battle for for people and people's rights. Um, so I just, there's so much to like about her. And I'm, I can't say this enough. I can't say this strongly enough for the people who are listening to us, how, what a remarkable person she was and how this film does justice to her spirit and telling her story, which I, I just barely, I, I realize now I barely knew anything about her. So my congratulations to you on just bringing all of these things to, to our attention and give and infusing the film with that that warrior spirit that she had, it's just terrific. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that this film is finally being shown in the United States. <laughs> Josephine would have really liked that. Yeah. Well, let let's let people know that um, it is going to be screening. How can people see this? It will eventually be on all of the platforms like Apple TV, Comcast, Infinity. Google Play, Frontier. So it'll be on a lot of different platforms. Is it going to have a theatrical run? Okay. We're still we're we're still waiting for that, but I still I really hope so. Yes. But be looking for this film uh, because she's a she was such a a beautiful woman, and she seemed so so comfortable in her own skin, and and she just seemed to be. I mean, how can you not like her? I, I defy anyone to say they don't like her because there's just so much, so many things about her and her life uh, that are remarkable and endearing. And thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I really appreciate your time. And uh, again, the film is called Josephine Baker, 
the story of an awakening. And we've been talking with the director, Ilana Navarro. And I hope that we have more projects coming from you. And, it, and when that happens, I hope you'll come back and join us again. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So me too. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.